Welcome to Chapel of the Lake in Lake St. Louis, Missouri. The Chapel family is a multi-generational community of believers who gather weekly to worship and explore God's Word as we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us now as Pastor Keith Spa opens the Scriptures. Well, good morning, Chapel family. I encourage you to take out your Bibles and open it up to the book of James, James chapter 4. We're in the midst of a study of this book. We'll finish it up right before Christmas. It's a marvelous book, but as I've heard from a number of you, you said, Pastor, this book is so convicting, and I have to agree it is. Always know, as uh, Jim Kane, our first full-time pastor here at the chapel, used to say, he said, you know, whenever, somebody, whenever somebody's pointing at you, there's three fingers pointing back. And whenever the pastor stands and opens the word and teaches, and it's, in, it's convicting to you, no, there's, you know, it's a lot more so here. But it's a, it's a marvelous book. This morning as we come into it, I want to take us back for a moment to the Old Testament As most of you know, the Old Testament scriptures contain many amazing stories and true stories there throughout the Old Testament. And one of those stories is perhaps the greatest love story ever told. The story is about a preacher, a prophet, by the name of Hosea. And preacher Hosea goes and marries a beautiful bride. A few years and three children later, it becomes apparent that his wife has been unfaithful. The third child, and perhaps the second as well, are not Hosea's children. When her unfaithfulness was exposed, she ran off with her lover and over time goes from one man to another. Worthless men who were unable or unwilling to truly care and provide for her. Now she thought that her lovers fed her, clothed her, cared for her, But unbeknownst to her, over the months and years, it was Hosea who kept track of her, who provided care packages for her that she had attributed to her lovers. Unfortunately, her reckless and selfless living continued to lead her deeper, deeper in a spiral into deeper depravity and deeper degradation and shame. And long story short, she eventually ended up in a slave market about to be auctioned off as a slave. Hosea learned about her situation and in an amazing act of love and grace, Hosea went down to that slave market and there he purchased her out of slavery. Now it would be an amazing story if all he did when he purchased her out of slavery was set her free or took her to her relative's house 
for her to live there and them take care of her. But in an act of unbelievable love and grace, Hosea took her home, there again to be his wife. The punchline of that story, it's a true story, but the real punchline comes in the, in the book of Hosea as God says, To his people Israel, what you have seen in the life of Hosea and his wife is what exists between you and me. You are a faithless, adulterous people, but I still love you. And if you will, I will bring you back and love you again. It was an object lesson a beautiful picture of God's amazing love for his people even when they were wayward and unfaithful. And they say, well, Pastor, that's a great story. What does that have to do with James? Well, as we come here to James chapter 4, I take us back to where we ended last week. We ended in chapter 4 and verse 6. And you'll notice if you look down there at verse 6, it says this, He, that is God, gives more grace. And some of you may not have been around last week, so let me just review. What's this grace about? We look up in verse 5, and there in verse 5, God says, that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. In other words, God longs intently for you. He longs intently for us. All of us who are his people, all of us who name his name, he desires intently to have an intimate relationship with us, for us to have loyal love for him. And that's awesome. I mean, most of us can't even get a good friend. And God says, I love you. I want you to be close to me, to love me. I want us to have an intimate relationship here. But there's a problem in the verse just before that. Again, we looked at this last week. In verse 4, James says to his readers, and we have the text here in front of us, so it includes us. James says, you adulteresses, you adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The point James makes is that Every one of us has tendencies to fall into thinking and living like the world, being friends with the world. And in so doing, we are being unfaithful in our relationship with God. We're committing spiritual adultery and we set ourselves Against God, we're playing for the other team. We are living as enemies of God. 
And that leaves us in a mess. And that's why verse 6 is such good news, because verse 6, as we read just a moment ago, where we ended last week, where we're beginning this morning, he gives more grace. God gives more grace. There is here in these words a great invitation for us this morning. What we have in those words of he gives more grace is we have the the words of a loving husband who loves unbelievably his unfaithful wife and is, as it were, calling her back into relationship with him. Like Hosea reaching out to his unfaithful wife, God reaches out to all of us, all of us who fail, all of us who have failed who instead of loving him as we ought, we have run off with the world. And with marvelous love and astounding grace that is more, he says, it's grace that exceeds our failures and our sin and our rebellion, God extends an invitation, a call to come home. He desires to restore us into intimate relation with him. And that's really good news. Again, because there's not a one of us who hasn't, at least from time to time, if not for extended time, we've been unfaithful to God. And he says, come home. But notice there in verse 6, That while this grace is there, and while God desires to lavish His grace upon us, notice there is one requirement there. Look at verse 6 again. But He gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James here quotes from Proverbs Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, and he says, where he reminds us that God's grace is only given to the humble. God's grace is great. He wants to lavish it on us, but he is opposed to the proud. And this grace of close relationship, of restored relationship with him, is reserved only for the humble. Humility is required. I say that humility does not come easily or naturally to us. Those of us who are of the older persuasion, which is quite a number of us, have gray hair or not much of it. Some of us can remember back to the 70s. Mac Davis had a song that was quite popular back then. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I think when I, I can't wait to Look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a real special man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Remember that? (laughs) It was a tongue-in-cheek thing. It was a parody. But see, it resonated with us because we all know deep down We find it hard to be humble. Not because we're perfect. We 
above all other people are aware of how imperfect we are. But yet we have this thing called, this problem called pride. And that pride is continually putting ourselves at the center of the world. (laughs) And that's what gets us into problem. It is pride which called Lucifer's caused Lucifer's fall, made him Satan. It is pride that is behind all sin when we take God off the throne and we put ourselves there. It's hard to be humble. As I said, it doesn't come easily or naturally to any of us. And we might wonder here when it says that we we recognize that we are so often unfaithful to God What a marvelous thing it is that God says he's offering more grace to us and calling for us to come into relationship with him. And yet what stands in the way here is pride. He is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And since humility is such a rare thing in this world, what does humility towards God look like? I think that's a great question. If I need to be humble before God, how do I do that? What does that look like? Fortunately, James, I believe, in these next verses, lays out for us at least some of what that looks like. Four commands he gives here. I would just say there are four practical steps for us, four keys for us. If we are going to be humble before God, what does it look like? Verses 7 through 9 this morning is really the heart of our text. And let's look at this. Four keys to having humility before God. Verse 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The first thing, if we are going to be humble before God, is we need to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. If we want intimacy with him, we need to submit to him. We need to give to him our undivided loyalty, our undivided allegiance It's really, in some ways, exactly what we expect in marriage. When two people come to one another at, you know, to get married, they promise undying loyalty, devotion to one another. And so it is when we come to Christ to desire an intimate relationship with Him, He is looking for us to submit to Him, to choose Him, as it were, to humbly acknowledge and submit to his authority that he alone is Lord and God and King. He alone deserves our obedience and loyalty. It requires humility because it requires us to give up our own agenda, our own desires, our own plans, our own way, our own will, and submit those to him. There's another aspect of it he mentions here that if we are going to choose Christ and submit to him, that it means we need to also resist the devil to literally the word stand against there is what that word resist is, to stand against the devil. Now, by the way, what that's not saying, and I've heard various 
teachers and preachers say over the year, you know, we need to go take on the devil. You know, we need to go fight the devil. Nowhere in the Bible does it call for us to go out and hunt the devil down. It says resist him, says flee from him. But when he comes against us, we are to stand. We are to resist. We, un- we are to understand that the devil is the enemy. And therefore we are determined not to go his way. Not to go his path. Not to join his team. Even for a little while. We are to recognize that loyalty to Jesus demands that we understand that, and, that the devil is the enemy. He is seeking to draw our affections and our attention and our loyalty away from Jesus, our true love. Notice, by the way, what happens when we resist the devil. It says he leaves. He comes at us with temptation. He comes at us and it just says resist him. You know, I realize that as I think about in my own life, I have a feeling it's probably that way in yours. Much of the problem that I have with temptation and falling into sin, much of my powerlessness against sin is because I try to straddle the fence. See, I have a feeling you struggle with that too sometimes. We say, I follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I I trust Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my King. But then... Want to kind of flirt with the world over here. Remember that friendship with the world thing. It's kind of flirting with, yeah, but I'm just a little, you know, maybe I just a little. And that's what he's saying. Simply that. That's where the powerlessness comes. Because instead of resisting the devil, we just want to not go over there and join that team. Just want to play a little. (laughs) James says, choose. Like Joshua in the Old Testament, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve the Lord or not? Make up your mind. Choose today. Submit to Christ, James says, and resist the devil. That's the first thing that humility looks like towards God. Choose your side, but don't try to straddle the fence. Secondly, verse 8 Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Draw near, come near to Jesus. I put it this way, desire Christ. See, what I was really saying is if we want intimacy, if we want an intimate relationship with Him, then we need to make Him the chief object of our affection. We need to seek Him above all else. We need to desire Him most. As the great commandment, really, of Scripture said, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. It is the great commandment of Scripture that God should be the heart of our affection. He should be the chief object of our love and desire. And you see, again, going back to marriage, we understand that concept in marriage. We want and expect that our spouse will love and desire us above all others. That's what we desire and we expect marriage to be. 
Marriages often deteriorate because as the marriage goes on, one or both of the partners begin to get consumed by and get drawn away by and be enamored with and attracted to and engaged with someone or something else. It might be work. It might be hobbies. It might be sports. It might be friends. It might be whatever else it is. But they begin to put their affections there and their attention there and their desires there and neglect their spouse and the marriage grows cold and drifts apart. And God says in this relationship, we are to draw near to him, to make him our first desire. Years ago, kids, I know you don't appreciate this, years ago, cars tended to be a lot bigger than they are now. Yeah, today we call them boats, you know, they're these these monster things and these big cars and usually the front seat in a car was a bench seat, not these little, you know, bucket seats. And back in those days, there was an older couple in the car going along, and they pulled up to a stoplight, and the husband is sitting over there, you know, leaning on the window, and the wife is sitting on the other side, it's a big car, leaning on the window. And as they're sitting there at the stop site, the wife looked at the car in front of them, and she sees up there in this car, there's a young couple, and there's a girl who's scrunched over next to the guy, and she's leaning her head on his shoulder, and they're all cuddled up there. And the wife calls over to her husband across the car, you know, why don't we sit like that anymore? And you remember his response? Who moved? Yeah. May I say that's the way it is in our relationship with Christ. We sit there and think, I don't feel anything for God. I I don't feel close to God. We feel so distant. The question is, who moved? He hasn't moved from us, but we have moved from Him. But here's the cool part. He says, if we move toward Him, He will come near us. You know, Most of us have no pull with anybody. If we try to get close to some celebrity, they won't answer our calls or our emails or our, you know, we can try to Snapchat or whatever else. You can't get through personally to to a celebrity. You have no chance of getting close to them. We can't get close to the President of the United States. Or probably even our senator or congressman or anybody else, you know, because we're nobody, right? But God says, I want to be close to you. And if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. See, we have no chance of getting close to him. If we can't get close to the president, how, what can we do in ourselves to get close to God? No, not working can't get closer to him. He has to come to us. God has already declared his love for us. He's already given an invitation here. He's extended an invitation to an intimate relationship with him. It's all through this book. But he doesn't force himself on us. God waits for us to make a move. To start to move towards him, the smallest little thing we can do. And then he comes to us. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. Those who seek me, find me. 
Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. When it's really your heart to seek me, when it's really your heart to desire me, you'll find me. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. I'm there right now, knocking. If anyone hear my voice, do you hear me? Open the door. I will come in and eat with him, he with me. She says, I want to be close. Will you open the door? Desire Christ. Humility, you see, is submitting to Christ. Humility is desiring Christ. We go on, verse, the, verse 8. I already read the first part. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Here's the next part. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Simply put, clean up. It says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, the great prophet, had a vision of God. And immediately upon seeing God, he was distraught, he was terrified. He cried out, he said, Woe is me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He knew that sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy God. We sang this morning about a holy God. But holy man cannot be in the presence of a, of a holy God. Isaiah knew he needed cleansing or else he would be vaporized, as it were. God provided cleansing for him. We won't go on in Isaiah. I come back here. My point is that God is holy. And if we want to be in intimate relationship with him, he calls for us to be holy. You know, we all know, going back to the marriage illustration, we all know that when we get married, some things have to change and some things have to go. You know, it may be that, you know, old sweatshirt in your closet, guys, has got to go. It may mean that, you know, it may be some piece of furniture or a whole bunch of furniture, or it may mean some hobbies have to go. It may mean some friends have to go. But certain things have to go because either they are in competition with our spouse or they are offensive to our spouse. Well, if we want to be in relationship with the Holy God, there are things that have to go. Cannot simply continue tolerating those things that God hates. We need to abandon the things that He hates. We can't keep clinging to sin. If we want a fellowship with the Holy One, we need to be holy. It involves recognizing and confessing sin in my life. We are going to sin. The Bible recognizes that. We are still creatures of dust with a sin nature, and we will sin, but it means when we do sin, we recognize it and we confess it. In 1 John 1, 9 says, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That relationship is restored and kept open instantly when we confess our sin and deal with it.
but also means that we work, we aim to remove sin from our life. Verse 9, one more thing, the fourth thing, that humility of what humility looks like to God. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Some of you are going, oh, now I get it. Now I get why so many Christians go around like this. No, that's not it at all. What he is not saying here is that Christians should be miserable people, that Christians should never have fun, that Christians should never laugh. That's not it at all. The point he's making here is that we should grieve and mourn and cry because we take sin seriously. In marriage, going back to that, in marriage, if we love our spouse, then we are going to be affected. We're going to be grieved if, and I would say when, (laughs) we offend them because we all offend our spouses and hurt our spouses from time to time, right? Because we're stupid. (laughs) But when we do, it should break us. Matter of fact, there's something wrong if we offend, if we hurt somebody that we say we love and it doesn't bother us. There's something very wrong. May I say, in fact, that we really don't love somebody if we can hurt them and we don't care. So when our behavior hurts God, when it offends Him and we don't care, can we say we love God? And notice James doesn't just say, hey guys, We need to feel a little bad about our sin. Look at the words. Grieve. Mourn. Wail. Those are pretty strong words. Most of the time in our churches today, most of our focus in church is, you know, me and Jesus. We got our own thing going, yo, yeah, me and Jesus. You know, and we, we love to sing, we, need to celeb- we love to celebrate, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It is good. It's appropriate. But it's not the whole of our life as Christians. Just as, again, go back to marriage, there's time for celebration and fun. There's also time in marriage for some... The heart-wrenching things when we have hurt, when we have offended. James is calling us here to something very opposite of what is our norm, something radical. And he's asking us, when was the last time you mourned over your sin? When was the last time we wept over our sin? When was the last time we grieved? It's our pride and our arrogance that keeps us thinking that sin is no big deal. But James is calling us to remember that our sin is ugly, it's hurtful, it's offensive, it's a stench to God who loves us so. 
He's calling us to remember that when we reflect on the sufferings of Jesus, how he suffered and bled and died, how he bore the wrath of God for our sin, that how can we sin and it not create in us a revulsion, a response of sorrow and regret? There are times that our laughter needs to be turned to mourning. And our joy needs to turn to gloom. Verse 10. And I'll wrap it up. In verse 10, we find a most amazing promise. Look at it there. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. God loves you. And he desires intimate relationship with you. And you, brothers and sisters, like me, like the audience James is writing to here, he rightly calls us adulterers and adulteresses because we all, we all from time to time fall. And this morning you may have, you may be here having fallen in the mud. Or you may be here this morning and haven't drug yourself into the very depths of degradation. And if that's you today, God promises here in in these words right there. He promises that if you come to him humbly, he'll lift you up out of the degradation, out of the muck, out of the junk, and restore you in relationship with him. Folks, that's amazing love. It's what Hosea illustrated, and it's there for you today. It's there for me today. Let us examine ourselves this morning. Come humbly before our Lord. There may be some of you here this morning, or maybe somebody watching online. You've never yet trusted Jesus as your Savior. Relationship with this great God simply begins... By trusting in Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish. But have everlasting life. He offers forgiveness from sin. A new life now. Eternal life forever. Relationship with him. As the child of God. As the bride of Christ. He offers it as a gift because he loves you so much. Father, these are marvelous words. To anyone who has never put their faith in Christ, these are marvelous words. There's an invitation here to them. To all of us who have put our faith in Jesus, there's an invitation here because we are constantly in need of this. We continually struggle. Father, we confess We continually struggle with misplacing our love, misplacing our affections to where we are friends of the world. We follow the ways of the world instead of following your way. We come and we confess that this morning. We come humbly to you. Father, we ask in your grace that you will do even as you have promised that as we come humbly to you, that you will draw us close to you. 
that you will teach us how to live and that you will help us to live as your children, as your, those whom you love. That you will teach us and help us to live faithfully for you, for our good, for the honor of your name in this world. Father, because to do anything else is for us to be unfaithful and unloving to you. And we don't want that. So change us this morning, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you as you grow in your walk with him this week.